Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2155 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 23 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. As we continue our series on the good news, according to John the Apostle, I do thank each one of you for being here. I know summertime, there's a lot of traveling So attendance is not always as much, but we just praise the Lord that we can minister, we can fellowship, we can encourage one another. Last week, as Sue mentioned, we talked about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the grave for four days. And Jesus proclaimed in chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And today our message is going to be in two parts. First part is John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57, starting on page 1670 in your pew Bible. And I'm going to back up and use the last two verses of last week's message and overlap so we have some continuity there. And then later in the message, we're going to switch to chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. So I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open and follow along. So let's read John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is a man performing many signs. If we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, and bring them together to make them one. So from that day, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew into the region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and they stood in the temple courts and they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Have you ever experienced or been confronted with that moment of truth, that sweet and terrible instance where truth about some particular unsavory or unethical aspect of your life can no longer be denied, minimized, rationalized, or disguised. It is there in all of its stark, unforgiving glory, demanding that we make a choice. You can continue to bury the truth 
and then live in a manic, strained denial for the rest of your days, or you can face the consequences. It will rest, bring the truth will give you rest, and the freedom, even though you do have to accept the consequences that go along with it. Now, if you've ever faced such a moment in your life, you know, try as you might to find it, there's no compromising middle way. We either choose to face the truth and confess, or we choose to continually deny that truth. Denial is a slippery slope leading to a quagmire of unpretensions and, pre and deception. Acceptance requires that those life-altering choices that we make that might cause intense pain to our own life and to the others that might be involved. But at least with the truth, the pain is a kind of healing pain. But that doesn't make the choice any easier for us. King David experienced that moment of truth when the prophet Nathan shared a story. It's written in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. So the Lord sent Nathan to the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised this little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from this man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day the guests arrived to the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for the guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs for this poor man, for the one that he stole, and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wife's and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of an Ammonite and then stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife as your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make it happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David confessed. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord will forgive you. And you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord. And by doing this, your child will die. Now, David had this moment of truth that maybe some of us have also faced. Maybe not in this situation, but other situations. And he was offered two choices. One, he could silence that prophet Nathan by killing him or he could repent. It was a choice between power and truth. He could have become like his predecessor Saul, who jealously clutched to power and wielded his power to hunt down David and tried to kill him. David, that Lord's anointed one. Instead, David proved very different from Saul. David was a man after God's own heart, as it says in 1 Samuel 13, 14. 
Despite of his awful sin, he was still a man after God's own heart. We can take hope in that. He chose to submit to the truth and then rest in that inevitable reward. He was released from the turmoil. He had freedom from fear, and he had peace with God, as was described in the Psalms that he wrote in Psalm chapter 32, or Psalm 32 and, and Psalm 51. The public ministry of Jesus was a three-year pronouncement, a moment of truth that the religious leaders had to make a choice in that first century Israel. The word of God had been promised for centuries. They were expecting him, and now it stood before them in flesh and blood, that truth incarnate. The religious leaders then denied the truth, though. They disputed it. They marginalized it. They even tried to silence it. But Jesus will not be set aside or put aside. He leaves no uncompromising middle way. Each individual, including you and I, have to make that decision of truth. We can deny or submit. We can reject or we can believe. We can embrace him and experience freedom, or we can kill him and try to preserve our illusion of power. After Jesus exercised power over death by raising Lazarus in last week's message, Many of the religious leaders began to break ranks with the religious leaders in Jerusalem and believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Therefore, those custodians of the religious power in Jerusalem could no longer put off the question about Jesus. They had to face the truth. What would their decision be? By the time of Jesus, the Jews had instituted what may have been considered sort of a provisional government under the leadership of Rome or the dominion of Rome. And this was anticipation of the Messiah coming in who would rule as king of all of Israel, taking David's place. Until then, the vested in the high priest were all the rights and privileges of a monarch in their own little world underneath the Roman domination. It was with the understanding, though, that this high priest would step aside When the Messiah came, when Christ came to claim his rightful place in the throne of Israel. Except during this reign of Herod the Great, Herod the Great proclaimed himself as king of the Jews. And he was appointed by Rome. The high priest traditionally guided the nation in this provisional leadership. So the high priest was sort of set aside a little bit here. And throughout of history, Israel would look to this body of elders for their day-to-day leadership. The council is known as the Sanhedrin in the scriptures, which served as both a parliament and a Supreme Court, sort of like our Congress and the Supreme Court in our nation. This ruling council of 70 leaders, these learned men of Jewish policies, within the limits that Rome has given them, ruled on both civil and criminal cases. One thing they could not do, though, is to proclaim somebody to die. They could not execute someone under the Roman rule. The Sanhedrin placed a high priority on maintaining an uneasy balance between Rome's desire to dominate its subjects and a yearning for those Jewish people to be free once again, their independence they desired. Usually the high priest was appointed by Rome. So the high priest was a figurehead appointed by Rome and the Sanhedrin were this Jewish council that really administered the law. They advocated for those independent-minded Jews and engaged between the high priest and the Sanhedrin in sort of a public rivalry. 
each pretending to work against each other, yet neither of them wanted anything really different. Any change would threaten to strip everyone from power, and that's what concerned them on this day. The council met to decide what they should do with Jesus. He bore all the scriptural credentials and produced all the right signs of the Messiah, yet he didn't even have an army. How could he ever take over the nation of Rome with no army? All he had was a few scraggly disciples that followed him around. To side with Jesus, as they understood the role of Christ that they wanted to have, was to defy Rome. But to defy Rome without an army would to be invite the worst kind of death. It was known among the Romans' generals for any city that rebelled, they would line the roads going into that city with crucified men and women and then sell their children into slavery. Throughout much of history, the high priest presided over the Sanhedrin, acting as its moderator in an official voice. But, but when Rome took over in about 200 BC to really clamp down on the nation of Israel, it became different. The, the high priest no longer ruled the Sanhedrin, but occasionally he was offered to come and speak to the Sanhedrin. And that's what we see today, Caiaphas. The high priest, which was appointed by Rome for that year, went before the Sanhedrin. So it wasn't anything unprecedented, but in this case, it would be like the President of the United States going to a joint session of Congress and speaking before them. And that year, the high priest was Caiaphas. He was the corrupt son-in-law of the true power within that temple, which was Annas, who used to be the high priest. When Caiaphas heard the debate, he issued an unwitting prophecy. While he was not a genuine man of God, he ironically spoke the truth in this case. He merely suggested to make Jesus that fall guy if Rome should seek someone to blame for the unrest among the people or the agitation in the crowds. In his sidebar, though, as John often does, he points out the theological truths of Jesus. It was his substitutionary death for the sin of all believers in Israel and all nations. And that's where we as Gentiles were brought in to this nation of Israel. By the end of the meeting, most of the religious leaders there, although probably not all, had decided an official disposition concerning Jesus. Submitting to the truth of Christ would require them to cede their power to Rome, and they refused to do that. Therefore, they wouldn't accept the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. They officially decided to, to kill him. They put out an edict. Anyone seeing Jesus Christ, report it right back to us so that we might arrest him. Because after raising Lazarus from the dead, it was a backlash that it was caused. Jesus avoided the contact with these religious leaders for a time. Though he was not out of fear, he wasn't fearful of these religious leaders because he knew God's plan and he was going to stick to that. But instead, Jesus and his disciples withdrew to Ephraim. It was about a day's walk above northeast of Jerusalem. If you look at your bulletin insert, the map where Israel at the time of Jesus, you'll see the brown area called Judea. And at the top of Judea, right below the blue area, which was the wilderness of Samaria, we see the city of Ephraim. So that's where he and his disciples went to stay for a period of time between raising of Lazarus and this final week before his crucifixion. 
It was northeast of Jerusalem. And you can see Bethany sort of east of Jerusalem there, which was about two miles from Jerusalem. But Jesus knew he simply did not need any further discussion with these religious leaders. He was done. The die had been cast. The breaking point had been reached. The point of no return was here. Each man associated with those official powers in Jerusalem in that nation had made up their mind. They'd either accept him or they would reject him. And the next time they would encounter these religious authorities of the temple, it would be in its official capacity. Soon, and this will be in next week's message, he would enter Jerusalem as King Jesus, the Messiah, arriving to claim his throne of Israel and assume command of the temple. Now let's go into part two of our message today, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And it's filled with John's commentaries and sidebars throughout this passage. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, there was an undetermined amount of time between this and when he returned, between Lazarus raising of the dead and when he returned. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with that fragrance of perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for my day of, the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. You will not always have me with you. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but they wanted to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests had made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on the account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now, John's narrative marks a significant transition in Jesus' life. If you look on the other side of your bulletin insert at the bottom there, it says the final week from public to private. In the left-hand most column was when he raised Lazarus from the dead, the miracle performed that we discussed in last week's message. And then he went to Ephraim, and that's the passage we just covered. He escaped there because the Jewish leaders had reached a breaking point. It was time to act now. And then the rest of this passage is in that third column. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. They had a, a supper in honor of Lazarus being raised from the dead, where Mary worshipped and Judas' greed was revealed. And this happened six days before the crucifixion. Well, no less than three years had elapsed from those, in the first 11 chapters of John, John dramatically slows his narrative now to cover less than a week in chapter 12, which will be this week and next week. And then three days are covered in chapters 13 through 20. This segment also marks a dramatic shift in his, from a public ministry to all the nation of Israel to private mentoring of those who are as closest to him. 
1 through 11 saw Jesus traveling up and down on the map of Israel here. He went from top to bottom through all the countryside along the Jordan River down to the Dead Sea, teaching the multitudes. Thousands of followers were flocking to him. His immense popularity commanded attention of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And at the same time, those, those crowds protected Jesus from their determination to assassinate him. Most noticeably, we'll see next week, during his triumphal entry, they didn't touch him because of the crowds that were around him. This gave Jesus ample opportunity to proclaim the word of God in the temple up to this point, confront the religious leaders about their abuse of power, correct their theology concerning sin and salvation, and set the crooked Messiah expectation straight. His ministry of presenting the truth of God, and you got to realize he was the literal embodiment of that truth, and it attracted believers whose hearts had been prepared to respond to him. However, that same truth also repulsed those who were non-believers, those religious leaders that hated him so, pushing them to a breaking point, which is the title of today's message, the breaking point. They could stand it no longer. They had to, to, to crucify him. The appointed hour of Jesus' glory was approaching. Jesus knew this. It was time for his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and finally his ascension. The work of preparation had been completed. The final week on earth was spent in the company of his disciples, friends, that he was preparing for what was going to happen that week and what lay ahead in the months after he was crucified. All this was walking the path that his father had prepared beforehand. The six days before his crucifixion, as we looked on the timeline there, Jesus returned to Bethany, just two miles from that hornet's nest of those conspiratorial enemies of Jerusalem. And it tells us that Jesus was brought back, that Lazarus had brought back, and that he brought back Lazarus. And because of that, many of the Jews, those chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees, believed in God. They were losing their base and they knew desperately they had to do something. As in the story of the other gospel accounts, as usual, Martha was serving the dinner. And Mary, she was also described as devout, a godly follower of Christ. And both sisters had their strengths and their gifts. And that's what they presented to Jesus. Martha served all the people that were there at the dinner. Jesus is and his other guests would be reclining at a table, and they don't sit in chairs like we did. They would recline on pillows and lean toward the table and have their feet out toward the back of the table. And this is the scenario that we see here. Jesus had his feet pulled away from the table, so they were exposed. And as in the previous encounter with Mary and Martha at dinner, Mary chose to abandon her serving duties to express her devotion to Jesus. Because regardless, sometime during the meal, she opened this alabaster jar of expensive perfume. Now, this is probably about a half a pint. that They described in the scriptures as a pint jar, so it would be about twice this size. But I didn't have anything quite fit that that looked like, sort of like a perfume jar. And this pint of nard was worth estimated $50,000 in today's money. Matthew and Mark both mention that she first anointed Jesus' head with this nard, and then she went down to his feet 
moved by enormous gratitude of grace, overtaken by grief by the ordeal that he was about to suffer. Mary knelt over his feet and broke that alabaster jar. And I won't break this jar today, but she poured out that pure nard on his head and on his feet. Nard is a lavender scent. So if you smell lavender wafting back to you, it's because of this nard with a lavender scented perfume that he first poured on his hair and then knelt his feet and broke the jar open and poured it out. She drenched his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. The fragrance of her spontaneous devotion filled the room with this pleasant odor. And on your bulletin insert underneath the picture of the map, I put a picture there, broken and spilled out. The crisis of faith and unbelief. By doing this, Mary violated several cultural norms. First of all, her society expected her to be serving, not sitting at the feet of the rabbi. That was reserved for the men. The women were supposed to be serving according to their culture. Second, touching the feet of another person was considered degrading. Mary, by wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair, which was in the, at the time considered her crown and glory of the woman, left her with no public dignity whatsoever. Thirdly, a woman was never to let her hair down in public. That was a sign of ill repute. The prostitutes of the day would have their hair down. The righteous women would have their hair up on their head. Fourth, the perfume she collected was typically a treasure kept by women for their dowry. And she emptied her entire dowry on Jesus' feet and wept. Her lavish act of worship left her without a dowry, thus reducing her prospects of any type of favorable marriage in her life. Judas Iscariot, we see, protested. He watched with horror and witnessed one, nearly one year's of wages, $50,000 running through the floor, either the dirt floor or if they had wooden floors running through the floorboards. It was more than he could handle. $50,000 for somebody who's greedy, just more than he could take. It would just seep through the cracks in the floor. In John writing some 60 years later, when he penned this gospel, he knew the true reason at that point for Judas's objections. This trusted treasure had been embezzling from the group funds for some time. The man was greedy to the core, despite his pious-sounding suggestion. Judas was cultivating a double life, and he might have been doing it for months or maybe in the entire time he was with Jesus. Like a sharp blade of that double-edged sword of truth that divides and stands and splits between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. In this case, with Judas, it created a chasm between his public persona in his private heart life. His charming religious facade kept his, was kept in a seething resentment, and he kept it carefully hidden for a time because he hoped to impress those that he was one of Jesus' disciples. We can't really know what Mary's motive was or what she had in mind when she worshipped their 
the Lord with this aromatic treasure that she poured out. But the Lord gave a profound theological purpose to it. The first step was in preparing the body once a person would die is to wash it clean with water and then to anoint it with this, this scented oil to perfume the body. Jesus used her expression as the devotional signal of his coming death, which was just one week away at this point. Jesus' public rebuke of Judas finally brought the dis, this duplicity this disciple to a breaking point. According to Matthew and Mark, it was at this point that Judas decided, I can't handle it anymore. I'm going to find a way to betray him. And he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, 30 coins. He was so greedy. And seeing $50,000 worth of oil poured through the cracks of the floor was just more than he could stand that brought him to that breaking point. Despite his winnowing multitudes, Jesus was, remained immensely popular during this time. Undoubtedly, genuine believers could follow, be found among all the crowds that he was in. But in this case, some of those that were coming, pouring to this dinner at Lazarus' home appears to be more of a mere curiosity. They not only wanted to see Jesus, but let's see the man who was raised from the dead. And his presence revealed Jesus' location, which they had been searching for him, asking, well, will he even show up for the this festival? Now they knew exactly where he was. He kept previously, previously kept this discreet. And once the religious leaders learned where Jesus was, gained by the help of this internal spy, one of Jesus' inner circle, a plot to kill him began to form and then accelerated throughout this week. And the application today is to thine own self be truthful. When I was a young man, I'd listened to sermons, lessons on Jesus' life and the conspiracy to kill him, and I was somewhat confused by it. I couldn't understand why anyone would want to murder the Son of God unless it was just out of genuine ignorance or outright insanity that clouded their vision. I wondered whether the Lord could have spoken to them one more time and it would have brought them to believe that might have helped them to know that truth or maybe perform one more miracle that they would realize. And the miracle of raising the Lazarus was a turning point for many of those Jews. Maybe a collective aha among everyone would, be proceed, would precede those profound apologies and complete acceptance of him as that long-awaited Messiah and all of Israel could celebrate. It was hard for me to grasp why that didn't happen. But I outgrew my naive innocence of youth, and I accepted the sad truth that's yet too all common even in today, that some people don't want to know the truth. They're lies that they tell themselves, and sometimes we tell ourselves, is so that we can try to control the world that we live in. At least, that's what we work hard to believe. Those who decide to cling to the truth will do anything they can to hold on to their false truth. It threatens their fear of the fantasy world that might fall apart. And because they're terrified to face the truth, and sometimes we are too, we are in fact powerless, and we don't want to admit that. Can there be anything more senseless than lies we tell ourselves, convincing ourselves that it is the truth? 
And unfortunately, I've seen over and over again those lies become self-fulfilling prophecies of a person's life. Now, in describing the last days of Jesus' public ministry in Jerusalem, John, in his matter-of-fact tone, as he often does, underscores this terrifying reality. The religious leaders willfully rejected the truth of Jesus Christ, so he gave them over to their self-delusion. Theologians call this judicial abandonment, this tough love decision on part of God to not passively allow them to go their way, but to give them over to their delusions. As we're told in Romans 1, he gives them over to their lies. When the Lord hands someone over to sin, it can be with the consequences that are so grave, but it's their choice. Like Pharaoh, hardened his heart. It said the Lord hardened his heart. Pharaoh had hardened his heart to the point where the Lord gave him over to that hardness. In the defining moment in which a person will either break down in repentance like King David did or remain stubbornly obstinate and rebellious like King Saul, even when he faced damnation. And in your bulletin insert on the side with the application, says, to thine own self be truthful. By way of application, I have only one point. Seek the truth that you most fear to find. They hold the greatest promises of freedom and the gravest threats of destruction. And it prompts us to ask several searching questions that we all need to ponder seriously. What truth have we been resisting? What voice have we been silencing or keeping at a distance to avoid hearing what we instinctively know to be true. How has the Lord confronted you lately? Have you drowned in your, out your conscience with activity, with work, with relationships, or some other kind of escape? Do we ignore the inner voice of reasoning, warning us to stop some behavior that we know to be wrong? And I urge each of us to ask this question honestly. We need to heed the truth to choose the freedom that, believe, that, that the truth brings to us. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, Jesus told us in chapter 10. Or we'll have unimaginable destruction that will undoubtedly follow. Just like the religious leaders in this passage, we must choose to accept the truth or reject it. Each of us, each person in this world, through all of time, will need to make that choice. And that's the application for today. In this passage, to thine own self be truthful. And then next week, Jesus will take his place as the king of the Jews as we continue our dialogue in a message called Seeking Before Hiding. So I'd ask you to please read John chapter 12, verses 12 through 50 in preparation for next week's message. And it's the triumphal entry of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. We'll get to celebrate Easter in Easter week, once again, all over, in several extended messages. But let us pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your love to us, your mercy to us, your goodness to us. We thank you for this message of truth, that we need to make the choice between accepting you or rejecting you, asking for repentance as King David did, or being obstinate as King Saul Worshiping you as Mary did as she broke that alabaster jar of nard and poured it over your head and your feet. 
We're rebelling against you as Judas did. Let us make the choice that brings us the truth in all areas of our life and all decisions that we make that it might please you, Father, according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.